A Christian school in Florida asks one mom to stop bringing her kids to school. Why? Because she's an OnlyFans prostitute. We'll do that and a lot more on this week's Corey Truax Show. I said what I said. These digital online platforms that have democratized prostitution are indeed prostitution. The selling of sexually explicit material, selling images of oneself for the sexual gratification of others, is prostitution, whether you ever meet anyone in person. And that's brewing. That's a brewing controversy down at a Christian school in Florida. I want to tell you about it. Also, by way of preview, I will tell you the fantastic failure of drug legalization in Oregon. There is, what else do I have for you? I have a corrupt non-pastor who has launched a cryptocurrency and has taken a lot of money from people. Oh, this is a good one. I have a comparison for you. You know, I'm the history guy, or I kind of am, that the 2024 election is turning out like a election that took place in my lifetime. There's a lot of parallels here that I think you'll find interesting that I need you to see. I might have some other audio from Bill Maher. I'll play you, but I will start with, in a moment, a new book that verifies there's one privilege that beats them all. We live in an age obsessed with people's privileges. And there, I've, I've argued for years there's one privilege that beats them all. This book from a secular person will, uh, so it's not just a Christian thinking, will prove I was right about that. I will give you the numbers. We'll do that and as much more as we can do in these next 35 or 40 minutes on the Corey Truax Show. Thank you for being with me wherever you find podcasts on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or threads. You can find me. Just look for me, Corey Truax. You can also email the show at Show at gmail.com, Show at gmail.com. I am grateful for your thoughts, links, stories. Uh, even one of the stories today come came from one of you, not just a listener, but also personal friend and, uh, and family member. So that's a brother-in-law. Skip, thanks for that story about the weird cryptocurrency pastor. All right, let's do this thing. I want to start here. There is a new book out called The Two-Parent Privilege is Real. It's by a demographer, demographer and social scientist. I cannot remember her name at the moment. I've not read the book. And usually I can find uh, summaries of books I want to read on an app like Blinkist or one of the other apps where you can get 15 to 20 minute book summaries. That's not been available for this book, at least not that I can find. But you can also usually find, this is a, this is a life hack for you. If there's a book you want to read, but you don't know you're not going to have, you don't know that you're going to have the time to read it or the 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 hours it takes to listen to it as an audiobook, you can usually go on YouTube and find whatever the longest interview is with the author. Because these people are promoting their books, they're, they're doing podcasts and YouTube channels and NPR interviews and C-SPAN interviews, they're doing lectures. I just choose the longest one, whatever the longest one is, and I listen to that interview or that lecture from that person, because usually in an hour and a half, two hours, you'll get the part of the book they really wanted everyone to know. And this person is arguing that the greatest privilege any of us can have is a two-parent household. It's not our ethnicity. It's not our wealth. It's not our education level. The greatest predictor of all the important things in life, I shouldn't say important things, all of the indicators of success by our modern measurements come to kids who had two parents. We're, I've given you all these before. Public health, we're talking about even predictive of obesity, heart disease, various onset things that come later, so not like type 1 diabetes, but like a type 2 diabetes, the more, the people who are more, uh, that were more in 
two-parent households are less likely to contract or develop those issues. When we talk about interactions with law enforcement, sentences from law enforcement, people with two-parent households are less likely to have those criminal proceedings. We have so it's public health, it's criminal justice, more likely to do well in school, go to college, more likely to stay employed, more more likely to have success in entrepreneurship, like test scores, everything. There isn't a metric where single parenthood advantages a child. Now, every time I say that into a microphone, I'm always convicted quickly to say, and I know that I'm likely talking to a woman right now or a man right now who is either a single mom, a single dad, or, or you're in a divorced relationship and your kids don't have both of you at the same time. I, and Listen, I don't want to lighten the load of the data. Your children are disadvantaged. That's true, bottom line. Now, you can work like crazy, and hopefully there's grandfathers and uncles. Uh, there's other f- motherly figures that can play roles because children need two parents. I'm even thinking now of my two nephews who have, I was a hybrid role. My big brother was a hybrid role of father. In some ways, even my dad, their granddad was something of that. Their stepfather is incredible. He's awesome. It's like they had multiple fathers, and they're doing great. These are incredible young men. But the thing that can't happen is just absence, that there's not the role of a man. And then it's, it's got to be a constructive man. And Listen, we need moms too, but moms are usually the ones that are present. There can be certainly, I could tell you the stories, not in my own life, but of folks I know and love, some really destructive men. Here's your biggest privilege, is if kids grow up in two-parent households. Here's just a couple stats I want you to take from this book. In 1980, 77% of children born in the country were born into a situation where the parents were in a relationship. That doesn't even be married. It doesn't necessarily mean living together. It means they had two parents who were saying at the time of birth, we are going to be involved in this with this kid. Now take that for what it's worth. Uh, because, for example, let's say 77% of kids in 1980 said they had two parents. The 1980s were the heyday of divorce. This is when our, our divorce rates skyrocketed. People started divorcing for any given reason because no-fault divorce laws were in their transcendency. And so if at the moment of birth in 1980, you had two parents, the chances were you weren't making it to 10 years old with two parents in the house or two parents involved and loving each other. But so it was 77% at the time of birth had two parents involved that said they were going to be involved with the kid. By 2019, 39 years later, wait, am I doing that right? 80, 90, 1,000, 2010, yeah, about, um, about 40 years later. It's about 60%. I'm sorry, about 50, 50 that's 53. 50, I'm looking at a graph, I read it wrong. 53%. But again, divorce is common. Breakups are common. It, do, it doesn't mean wed. It doesn't mean married couples. It's couples that say at the time of birth are going to be involved with this child. And again, if they're not married, even if they are married, that 53% number that had two parents involved when they were born by the time they're going to middle school, by the time they're 11, 12 years old, one of those parents is gone or it's a broken household. In 1970, only 5% of children were born to an unmarried woman. And what a world that would be. Only 5% of children were born to an unmarried woman. In 2019, one out of every two. One out of every two children 
is born to a woman who is not married. Can you see the difference in statistics here? There's a difference between born to a situation where both parents say they want to be involved, but then there's marriage and the stability that it brings. Now we know that as of 2019, that's when the last numbers uh, were full enough for this person to write a book. One-parent households are making up almost half of all households in poverty. One out of every five one-parent households live under the poverty line. As we have for these 40 years decided, marriage is unimportant, childbearing and marriage being connected are unimportant, dedication and fealty to one another, mom and dad, for the good of the child, when we said, you being happy, you pursuing your needs, it's more important than what this kid needs, you got to be you. And you got to be happy. And kids are resilient. That's a story we told ourselves. Kids are resilient. They'll be okay. We're, we're just got all the numbers now, guys. It doesn't work. Yes, it's more importantly, it's sin. It dishonors God. But when we are not living in accordance with his design for the world, we're just making an ugly, disgusting, broken world for our kids. Another thing I pulled, pulled from this book in one of her lectures that it's almost maddening, is this fact, that in our culture currently, the wealthier you are, the more likely you are to be married, and get this, the more likely you have, you have been married only once. Multiple marriages are more common, much more common, amongst low-income and middle-to-low-income people. The wealthy and the highly educated, also, that's another correlation. The highest educated people married one time. So the wealthy and the highly educated, the ones that make our culture, that run the giant corporations, that run, very importantly, our universities, that came up with the idiotic idea, the demonic idea that children don't need a father and a mother, our universities and giant corporations, the folks who, who, are, who are our thought leaders, who make our music, the music executives who choose what to promote, the movie makers and TV makers. These people, the elites, they're the ones that pushed on everybody in a pop culture way and pushed on the minds that would shape other minds. That's the university system. They pushed on the rest of us. You don't need a father and a mother for a kid. You don't need to be married to have a kid. These kids don't need to have a mom and a dad. The elite pushed on the middle and lower class And by lower class, I mean income only. There's nothing lesser about a person because they have less. They pushed a lifestyle to the middle and lower class folks, and it wrecked their lives. The the theories that the upper class were teaching, the upper class wasn't practicing it. The upper class wasn't practicing divorce and remarriage and divorce and remarriage and having kids with multiple people and having kids outside of marriage. The upper class wasn't actually doing it as they thrived, the upper class was making up these idiotic, demonic ideas, pushing it on the middle class and lower class, and it's wrecked us. The hypocritical garbage that comes from the intellectual elite. One other thing I pulled from this lecture and interviews that I watched from this author that I thought was important. We've had a hollowing out over my lifetime of true blue-collar work for men. It does well around here. I think about even my church. 
there are men who do blue collar work in manufacturing on, not necessarily on assembly lines. It's not all it's not how manufacturing often works anymore. But what would be thought of as blue collar work? They work a lot of hours and they work hard. Where I would put, I'm not. This is kind of weird. Like I have, I have a white collar job. I'm in the university system. I, I'm supposed to wear. Well, I don't. I'm not supposed to. I wear a suit most days. I, I I dress up for work. Um, I'm salary not hourly. I don't get measured by output, right? There's my job is different. But I notice even in our church, my social setting, our blue collar people can actually make a living. They can provide a a good living. Those jobs still exist in the South. Because they moved here, those jobs moved here from the Northeast and the Midwest. There are some good there are there's some good life to have in blue collar work. But because the share of jobs that are good enough to provide a living has hollowed out as some of those jobs went to Mexico, China, uh, Singapore, Philippines with through free trade free trade agreements, and because of rising gender equality in the workforce, that women have entered the workforce in such large numbers to take on a lot of those blue-collar jobs and white-collar jobs, we are finding that women are saying there are no marriageable men. Because in part, a woman is looking for a man who, not necessarily all women look for a guy who can absolutely provide everything for her, but we have just the we have the data, and we have our instincts that says a woman wants a man who makes a, makes a little more than her. Or if it's not going to be monetary, has the instinct initiative to be the the breadwinning factor, even if the, even if that's not monetary, even if even if it's not earning more, that that is capable of taking control of the household, managing the house, be in control. And as as this book lays out, here's what we found. Women, the last 20 or 30 years, are the ones going in larger numbers into the white-collar fields. They are the attorneys. They are the doctors. They are the nurses. They are the specialists in the medical world. And so as women made an argument that they they wanted to be making the money and having the jobs in the white-collar world, they're then getting to their 30s and looking for a man. But all of the men who are white-collar are... Uh, have their ch- have their choice of woman because they have they have all the money they've got the white collar job, and the there's this it's glut versus scarcity in economics. There's this glut of women. Glut means a lot. There's this large chunk of women who are now earning great money, highly educated. They are they're hoping for a man who is at their achievement level or more. But now the share of men who are earning less than them and who are blue-collar is where all the guys are. And so they refuse to, those women tend to refuse to marry up with the blue-collar guy because they're looking for the proportionally much smaller group of men who are achieving higher than them. And so the marriage rate is, in part, why the marriage rate is dropping. And then, Nevertheless, unfortunately, there's a lot of kids born into that unmarried world, and it's terrible for them. This is the greatest privilege of my life that I had two parents who were married when they birthed me, stayed married my whole life, and are with each other right now. It is the greatest benefit the Lord gave me when it comes to physical blessing. If you are listening to me right now, you are married with children. The greatest thing you can do, sir, 
is love your wife really well in front of your kids. The greatest thing you can do, madam, is love your husband well in front of your kids. Lift each other up. Stay together. I'm glad Matt Chandler said this recently in a sermon. He straight up argued, if you were thinking about getting, uh, if you're thinking about getting divorced and one of the factors is you don't want to do it for the kids, then don't do it for the kids. Figure out the rest of your, your emotions and how you feel about each other, but stick together for your kids because your kids need it. The book is called The Two-Parent Privilege Israel. I can't remember the name of the author right now, but if you go out there on YouTube and uh, the various streaming platforms, I'm sure you can find an interview. It's just really important, and I, I want to emphasize God's design is the right one for us, and God's design is that children are birthed into the, a married couple, mom and dad. They need that. And those of you who don't have that and you're worried about your kids, I am, I am encouraging you. Find the community to f- try to find the, the forces, not to replace, but at least supplement what you're doing because uh, kids do need male and female influences. They need masculine men and feminine women. That is how healthy young people are raised. All right, speaking of not healthy young people, this is my best transition I could think of. I've got to tell you about this story down in, um, in Florida. Uh, I have two stories for you next that come under the category of of often caring too much for people's autonomy. There's in most policymaking, in most uh, philosophy of life, two competing factors are the individual's autonomy versus how that person's autonomy in, in individuality affects the rest of the group, because the argument often is, uh, I heard someone arguing for this recently on a podcast, if I do it and it doesn't have a direct effect on you, then why should I be able to do it? And they were talking about pornography. If I participate in pornography, if I consume pornography and it doesn't affect you, then why should I be able to? They're arguing my autonomy and individuality, if it doesn't affect the whole, then I should be able to do it. But then that same person might argue something about it environmentally. You know, I, if you... Uh, if you do something that harms the environment, that harms the community, and so your autonomy needs to be subjected to community. This is a uh, this is a theme in all the policy making and how ideas interact with each other. These, these next two stories come under that rubric. So here are the facts of the case. There is a woman down in Florida who has sent her kids to a Christian school. I I, I don't I don't know why. There's a uh, I'm actually I'm not going to give you her name, uh, but she drops her kids off at school, uh, Central F- Florida location around Orlando, every day, and on the back of her big SUV that she's dropping her kids off in, it's a sticker that goes from one end of her SUV back window to the other. So get that picture, get a like a a fairly large SUV in your mind, and a sticker that covers the window. It has the OnlyFans logo, and then it has her link, OnlyFans.com slash, and then her information. Because this woman doesn't have a real job, she's a prostitute. She sells images of herself and sexual acts on the internet to support herself and her kids. And somehow, for some reason, thought it was very important for her children to go to a Christian school. I, that, you know, that beats me. I, I wouldn't, couldn't tell you why. So those are the, that's the oh yeah that's the, that's some of the facts and then the 
because of some parents complained that this woman is coming through the drop-off line in the pickup line, picking up her elementary and middle school kids, uh, we would like her not to bring that vehicle at least. They're not asking for the kids to be kicked out, but she can't, we, we don't want this kind of advertising on campus. And this woman is angry about it, and she feels set upon and singled out. So I, I just want to give some uh, some clarity. If I was the principal of that school, I don't even, huh. I would ban her from campus. Listen, if you want to pay us and you want to to educate your kids and your kids want to get here sometime, but uh, lots of things are true of you. Um, You are bringing onto this campus where there are elementary, middle school, and high school children, you're bringing an advertisement for prostitution and pornography. Just the same way, but in a worse way. I'm not going to allow cigarette companies or some... I don't know, someone, uh, I guess no one technically advertises illegal drugs. But alcohol advertising, I'm not allowing that on my campus. I don't care if the local bar comes and says they want to sponsor our football games on Friday night. We just got to put up their advertisement. I'm going to tell them no. I'm going to tell you no. You don't get to bring your advertising of prostitution and pornography on a campus with children. And further, now that you've made clear who you are, I don't mind saying it. You're not safe to be around kids. Your job is objective sexuality. Se- sex isn't a job. Not a legitimate job. This stupid thing that's said on the secular left that sex work is work. No, it's not. It's sinful prostitution. It's degrading to everyone involved. And you don't get to have it on campus. This is the, the theme here for these next two stories is this obsession with autonomy. She's saying what, what I'm doing with my body, is how I support my family, and it's none of your business what what I do. Okay, fine. Even if that's true, you made it your business when you brought your pornography advertisement on my campus with children. And so now, I am choosing the community over you, because what you have chosen is gross and disgusting and degrading, and I'm not, I'm not exposing children to it. You know, sidebar here, I'm so proud of the South Carolina State Legislature. They're following Oklahoma? Oklahoma, I think it's Oklahoma. Oklahoma's lead in requiring age verification for Pornhub. Pornhub is basically shut down in Oklahoma. You can't access it because they don't want to put in the effort to verify the ages of those coming to consume their filth. And South Carolina's on their way to doing the same thing. That's good. OnlyFans, I'm, I'll just say it, should be banned. It should be illegal. It should be illegal for a random woman to just sell herself on the internet. You're not a product, you're a human. I'm ready to shut down the entire pornography industry. It has so degraded our culture. So that, that's one story. It, but I tell you that story in part because the comment section on the local news is mostly on her side. How dare this Christian school be so judgmental? Because I'm protecting our kids, okay? Judge me all you want. But this prostitute doesn't get to do things that endanger the purity and the innocence of children because that's how she wants to uh, support herself instead of getting a real job with whatever skills, talents, and abilities the Lord has given her. S- a similar situation in philosophy, at least. In 2020, I think that's right, in, 20, in 2020, might have been early 2021, the voters of Oregon passed something called Measure 110. And Measure 110 decriminalized drug use, meaning if you are doing 
heroin, cocaine, some of these very hard illegal drugs, it is decriminalized. You, you can't be charged with, with something for doing these even out in the public. We're going to decriminalize drug use in that state. Why? What's the philosophy? Autonomy. If someone wants to do hard drugs and potentially ruin their lives and waste whatever talent, skills, and abilities they have, what business is that of ours? What business is that of the community if they want to do destructive things? Well, uh, what's this, three, about three weeks ago? About three weeks ago, Oregon, the, the governor of Oregon, the mayor of Portland, has declared a 90-day state of emergency where they're going to basically recriminalize drugs. Just check out some of these stats. In 2019, overdose deaths in Oregon from drugs was 280. Last year was 956. That went up by a factor of almost four. That's how much we worship autonomy. It's very important that people can kill themselves with drugs. The most important thing is that someone's just free to do whatever they want. And if they use whatever they want to expose children to pornography and kill themselves with drugs, should they still be able to do that? Well, secular progressive leftism says yes, yes. It's very important that everyone do whatever they want. Whatever brings them pleasure, that's the most important thing in life, no matter the consequences. The other consequences for Washington and and Oregon, there's just open, on-the-street drug use downtown. It's made businesses shut down, limit their hours. This is where you see news reports of putting everything behind glass in a CVS because people are coming in in drug-addled states and just stealing things. Workforce participation rate is down in the state of Washington. That's going to have lots of factors, so I'm not blaming it fully just on the drug thing. But can we just toss out here the worship of the autonomous self Maybe even here there's a whisper from the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2 and 3. Wait, yeah, that's 3. If you, if you eat of the fruit, you will be like gods. There's this thing about autonomy. You want to be free of God and God's standards. When we do that, when we focus on autonomy above all else, where do you land? Exposing sixth graders to OnlyFans and people killing themselves by the hundreds because they just got to be able to do their drugs. This is where it lands when we just decide that God's law is something to be uh, tossed, tossed down and trodden on. i got a bunch of other stories I want to share with you. This one actually might be a little bit of a longer episode today. I hope you'll stick with me for it. But that just brought to mind that this idea of thinking about God's law, thinking God's law... God's thoughts after him has been a theme of the show the last couple years. I've been trying to think about ways to make God's law practical in the common modern world. Some of those examples I've given you is that there's such practical law in the Bible even of what to do when someone's ox gores someone or hurts someone else's property and how restitution is made. My guess is that you've not been gored by an ox and no one in your family has and no one's negligence with their ox has hurt you. But I suspect maybe you or someone you know has had the modern day equivalent happen to you and I think that analog would be getting hurt in a car accident or getting hurt at work. 
both of those things, car accidents and getting hurt at work, can have serious consequences when you come away injured. Medical bills pile up. You're losing wages. And while those two things are happening, you're just trying to figure out this labyrinth of a justice process to make it all right. I know that could be intimidating, but I don't want you to be intimidated by it. There are people out there to help you, and the one I want to point you towards right now is a personal friend of mine. His name is Samuel Harms. You can Google him. That's what I do usually to find him. It's Samuel Harms, H-A-R-M-S, as in stay out of harm's way. He's right here in Greenville. His number is 864-666-6666. Samuel Harms, attorney at Law for Real. Don't try to do these things alone. Find someone who can answer some questions and help you through it. Reach out to Samuel Harms here in Greenville. He's near Woodruff Road. It's 33 Market Point Drive, Greenville, South Carolina, 29607. His number is 864-666-6666. So if you have been gored by the modern-day ox, as it were, as, as in hurt in a car accident or maybe hurt at work, get in touch with Samuel Harms at 864-666-6666. A few more stories I want to do with you today. Uh, let's start over here. This is a little bit of a longer clip. There's a, I don't want to call him a pastor. There's a guy who calls himself a pastor of a digital church. I don't even know if they had a physical campus who has scammed some people. He decided to launch his own cryptocurrency and was able to raise millions of dollars. And then a lot of people lost money, but he did quite well. I want to play for you from a YouTube channel called Nate the Lawyer. Uh, some of the clips from this pastor guy, and then I have some comments on it. This pastor, do, I don't know his name. It's Eli something or other. Here you go. Praying, I'm like, Lord, are you sure there's not another option? Like, are you sure there isn't like another way that we can do this? And Lord said, there, there's none of these monetary systems are safe. They're not. There's, there's, there's nowhere that people can turn um, and have their money safe. And, and, um, and this is, this is the Lord says, he goes, you're, I'm entrusting you with this son. I'm entrusting you and your wife with this to lead this and to make sure that when people come in, it's, it's set up, it's set up and it's protected. It's protected. And that's the whole thing with the audits and everything else. It's so that's protected. You know, that most cryptocurrencies they'll launch, get hacked, people lose money, and then they do an audit. Right. We did all this stuff on the on the front side to make sure that we were above and beyond reproach and that we weren't one of those many companies. Pro tip. If your pastor starts to try to sell you cryptocurrency, run for the hills. Second, did you hear the language two or three times? The Lord told me. The Lord told me, son, I'm entrusting this to you, son. If you start getting that language from a, quote, Christian or church leader, uh, be skeptical, if, especially if it's something you can't verify. The Lord told me to start a cryptocurrency. Um, how, how did he do that? Were you eating some alphabet soup and it spelled crypto? How on earth did, did the Lord tell you to do this? Because I don't, I don't find this indicated in Scripture anywhere. Be wary, not just of cryptocurrency people, be wary of people that say, the Lord told me. Companies that launched prematurely, had to stick their foot in their mouth, lost a bunch of money, and then had to sit there and try to rebuild trust with the consumers. It doesn't work until it happened right and so when i'm speaking the lord's like i need you to speak this i need you to prophesy i need you to say what i'm trying to say and i'm like well lord like what if i'm wrong like what if i get this wrong what if it doesn't happen da, 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 da. and it's not on me it's on him well that's it that's convenient too so you're going to launch a cryptocurrency ask people for a lot of money the lord told you to do it the lord keeps telling you to do it and if it doesn't work it's on the lord it's not on you I believe, I could be using this a little bit out of context. You Bible scholars tell me if you think I am. 
This feels a little bit like false prophecy in the Old Testament. And do you know what happens in the Old Testament when there's false prophecy? They are they're killed for it. They're put to death for their false prophecy. And he's straight up saying, well, if I end up being a false prophet, it's not my fault. It's God's fault. So you know what, Lord, this is this is your barbecue. It tastes good. This is on you. You want the people to know this. Here it is. Now, with this pitch, this guy was able The second voice here you're hearing is Nate, the lawyer who covers these stories, and he does a good job on this one. Able to raise over $3 million from his flock. $3 million, which is insane. And if you notice, he said, it's not on me, it's on God. But regulators say the couple sales pitch were filled with prayers and quotes of the Bible, encouraging investors to have faith in their investment and would lead to abundance and blessings. <laughs> that's what the complaint says. And that's exactly what he's saying in that video. So now after... So to cut that off a little short, here's what he ends up doing. He took, he took a $1.3 million, did a major renovation on his home, bought a, I think it's a Range Rover and some other things. And when asked, why'd you do that? The Lord told me. He says, those, the Lord told me to renovate the house. The Lord told me to buy those things. Uh, I'm going to move on from this, but I, I'm, I am outraged by it, but I just wanted to give you those two tools for uh, counsel, not just for yourself, because I think my audience is discerning, but for others. When they start on a personality that says, the Lord told me, give them warning. Hey, I heard about this guy. His whole, his entire platform was saying, the Lord told me to start a cryptocurrency. The Lord told me to take $3 million from you and then take $1 million to renovate my house and buy some stuff. And the other $2 million, we just lost it because cryptocurrencies are not currently, not currently, maybe they will be one day, a stable form of, uh, of investment. Be very, very cautious of those who do the, the cryptocurrency thing. All right, a couple other things. Not just the cryptocurrency. I want you to be cautious and advise others to be cautious of the people who say, the Lord told me, fill in the blank. Let's do this one. Uh, I said I wanted to go. All right, we're going to go a little long today. Let's do this Bill Maher clip first, and then I have one more thing. You might have heard about what's going on with the immigration bill in Congress and the apparent need, the alleged need, for some funding and some legislation from Congress for the President of the United States to do anything about the border. I want to play for you now from Bill Maher. Bill Maher is an atheist liberal. He's a normal liberal. He's a liberal from like 1995. Still wrong about basically everything, but a normal person. Someone I could have a cool conversation with. I like Bill Maher personally for his honesty and transparency and not being a woke weirdo. He had a normal thing to say about the claim that the President needs the Congress to do something in order to enforce existing laws regarding immigration and asylum, here is Bill Maher. Part two of the acting yeah. is Joe, is, is Joe okay. Biden saying, you know what, if you just give me a new law, a new law, why doesn't the president can fix this? He already has the existing laws. And border patrol this, this will is right silly. to your face. I need a piece of yeah. paper from Congress to deal with the border. No, you already have that. That's right. That's right. And even a California audience there where he records is giving him an applause line for that. Because it is abundantly true. The law is what it is. You claim asylum, you, ha you, need to, you have a certain level of proof um, that you need to provide. And while it's being adjudicated, we get to decide, but the executive branch gets to decide, what do you do? The executive branch being the president, 
can make them wait in Mexico. They can build detention centers at the border or on the Mexican side of the border. They can send them to various places. This particular administration has just decided to send them into the country. If you make an asylum claim, we'll give you a court date. It could be as far as seven, eight, nine years out, and then just say, all right, have fun. We'll see you in about seven, eight, nine years, and we'll adjudicate it then. The administration can choose, with no other laws written, just to hold people in a different situation. And a detention center is the way to go. And then quickly adjudicate asylum claims. Same thing when you find people coming across the border in non-indicated places. Like asylum claims are supposed to be made at actual crossings. You come to the border where people actually cross and say, I'm making an asylum claim. Then there are others found at non-official crossings. You can make the decision. You you need no other laws as an administration to say, uh, we are, A, deporting you right now, or two, uh, what your other options? Again, you could do detention center, but right now we're just sending them to various parts of the country. So I just want you to know, even the the normie left, not the woke left, but the normie just liberals who happen to think the wrong thing about the role of government. They want the government to be bigger. They get this one. This is not a hard one. The I, I would love to see some immigration reform. I'd love for it to be cheaper to come here, and that we could be very selective about who comes here to choose the world's all-star team and bring them in. I'd love that. I don't mind that idea of uh, whoever wrote the book called One Billion Americans, that maybe in 100 years there's a billion of us on this continent. I'm, I'm on board. But not like this. This is chaos. And the, uh, those who are telling you that more laws need to be written are lying to you, and I wanted you to get that from Bill Maher. All right, final thing. I think I found the analogy for the 2024 election. And it came in my lifetime. In 1992, Ronald Reagan was uh, several years off the scene. And in 1988, his vice president, George H.W. Bush, had won an election. Pretty handily against, uh, I think that was Michael, yeah, Michael Dukakis. The proceeding four years had the Gulf War in it. Where it, and we were triumphant, just a absolute bludgeoning of Iraq's forces there in uh, that was Kuwait, yeah, that was Kuwait in Desert Storm. There was a an some economic issues, including some inflation, slowing down of the economy, some employment issues. There was a pledge that George H. W. Bush made during his campaign that said no new taxes. He said, "Read my lips, no new taxes," and then he raised taxes, and there was some economic contraction because of that. And out in the polling, in the data, the mood of the country was, this economy is weak. Unemployment's a problem. We're having trouble affording things. That's the struggle we're having out here. In the very insular Republican Party at the time, the very, uh, what's that word? Echo chamber, that's it. The echo chamber of the Republican Party was saying, Who's going to vote against this war veteran, George H.W. Bush? Who's going to vote against the winner, the triumphant uh, winner of the Gulf War? Who is going to vote against the Reagan heir apparent, this Reagan who won you know, 48 states in his first election, 49 states in the next election? This is a very popular 
administration, who's possibly going to vote against him? We're riding high. Everything's great. And then further, they looked at their opponent, this overweight, kind of slick, but in some ways unimpressive, kind of inarticulate sometimes, country boy, Bill Clinton out of Arkansas, and said, who's going to reject us, the the prim and proper who've done all the right things and embrace this outsider who's not really one of the elites when everything's so good in the country. Oh, and by the way, while it happened, our most successful third-party candidate ever named Ross Perot comes up and asserts himself to get, I think, uh, 18% of the vote. I'm just checking my knowledge now. If I end up being right that Michael Dukakis was the one who lost in 1988 and Ross Perot got 18% of the vote, I'm going gonna, gonna to feel pretty good about my retention skills in any event. Can you feel that analogy? There's this insular echo chamber president right now who just keeps telling us, your life's great. Don't you see how awesome your life is? And the people are out here going, man, it is expensive to live right now. The job market's pretty good, but the, I mean, the wages aren't great. It's actually kind of hard out here. And then that insular echo chamber administration, who are the insiders, the elites, they're looking at their opponent and going, well, not only who could reject us when things are going so well, but who could accept that outsider weirdo? And all the while, by the way, there's a brewing, very now likely, legit, like hardcore, pretty good third-party candidate. And what was the outcome of 1992? Well, the third-party candidacy drew enough away from the establishment type that was, at the time, the Republican candidate, George W. Bush, that with around 39% of the national vote, Bill Clinton won the Electoral College and became President of the United States. I am envisioning something similar. Well, I'm not making a prophecy because I actually don't want to be put to death if my prophecies are wrong. But I'm telling you, as the historian, I see parallels. In in this case, H-Dub is Biden, Trump is Clinton, and the third-party candidate is whoever no labels puts on the on their ticket, or maybe RFK, or the combination of all of them together become the embodiment of a Ross Perot. And I think the outcome actually would be that outsider insurgent actually actually wins again, for better or for worse. I Honestly, I, I can't get myself to care because I'm at that spot where I just think the Lord is going to bless and curse us different ways with whoever happens to lead the executive branch of the federal government because it's a lot less important than we all think it is. I had some other stories I wanted to do, but I actually have run out of time. Uh, so I'll try to save those for next week. If you have thoughts or feedback, I would love to take those on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or threads. Look for me, Corey Truax. You can send me messages there. You can also email the show at CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com, CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. If the Lord allows, I'll be back for another new edition of the Corey Truax Show next week. Thanks for listening, everybody. Until next time, peace and love.